Hi, this is filmmaker and author Michael Morin. Whenever I'm not riding my bike around the Davis campus, I'm listening to 90.3 KDVS College Radio right here. FM. Cool. This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. You know, Radio Parallax is trying to actually build a uh, a nationwide network of contacts for us. On today's program, we're going to go to New York City to interview a classic comedian, who actually started in the 1930s, 92, I guess it is, year old, Professor Erwin Corey, the world's foremost authority. And, uh, you know, we, we do have some folks in L.A. that we've been talking to. I, I did, uh, on assignment for Radio Parallax, try and obtain Mort Saul, another legendary uh, comedian. Uh, I failed in this quest. I went down to L.A. and saw Mort uh, speak at Magicopolis in Santa Monica, but his wife was running interference for him and said he's just not doing any interviews uh, currently, period, end of story. But, uh, but we're not going to give up quite that easily. We're going we're gonna to see what we can do. And it wasn't ruled out completely. He just said he needs to have sort of something more of in context of if he's coming up to, to the Northern California, then he might talk to us, yada, yada. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, comedian Jerry Seinfeld is, uh, is coming to Stockton on Saturday for the opening of the new Bob Hope Theater taking place in downtown Stockton. And um, I don't know whether we'll get a chance to speak with him or not, but we're going to try that as well. We're a bit frazzled of late, so I think what we're going to do on today's program in our third segment today, we're going to go to the archives and pull out some of our classics. And today I think we're going to review an excellent interview we had with National Geographic film documentarian Michael Bana, which uh, was uh, aired last summer. It was a great interview, and I think we're going to do it again today. And hopefully you'll enjoy it if you didn't hear it uh, the first time um, uh, newly. And if you heard it the first time, well, enjoy it again, okay? You know, we like to start each show with at least some little bit of levity. And, of course, Rodney Dangerfield always seems to come through for us. So um, how about this one? I was such an ugly kid. When I played in the sandbox, the cat kept covering me up. And now in some real-world comedy, and of course we like to cite uh, political uh, humorist Will Durst when he says, you just can't make this stuff up. With the following item, I'm listening to NPR on Sunday, and they mention that uh, National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice has commented on CNN about some developments in North Korea. I don't know if you noticed this. There apparently was a humongous explosion in the renegade communist state of North Korea, somewhere near the Chinese border, after which witnesses described seeing a large mushroom cloud. Now, of course, uh, the subject of whether whether they do or do not have nukes in North Korea has, uh, you know, been in the news much of late. And, of course, when a large mushroom cloud suddenly appears after an explosion, you think that eyebrows would be raised all over the world as to what this might mean. Well, Condoleezza Rice did, did go on to CNN and say yes, She'd heard these reports and that uh, they were looking into it and that, uh, you know, perhaps 
perhaps in North Korea there'd been a forest fire. And I, I thought to myself, sure, you know, we live in California. Forest fires are a, a relatively common phenomenon here in our dry summers. And of course, you know, any of you out there that have been anywhere near a forest fire know that they are often accompanied by humongous explosions and mushroom clouds, right? Yes, this is the administration that's apparently getting extra points in this election year for the fine job it's done in being vigilant in the ongoing war on terror. Yes, a large explosion in mushroom cloud, probably a forest fire. Now, I would like to just mention that um, in the Osama Watch, we're now getting up near 1,100 days. In fact, I think we're at now, we are at 1,101 days since the September attacks on, um, September 11th attacks on America. We haven't captured Osama, but we did invade um, Iraq, two-thirds of which is now under the control of radical Islamic fundamentalist clerics. Yes, what used to be a secular state where such people who may or may not be allied with Al-Qaeda directly, they certainly seem to be allied with them indirectly, uh, they were under control by strongman Saddam Hussein, who, you know, let's admit, by all standards, was not a nice guy. But it was not the kind of um, uh, failed state that we saw in Afghanistan until now. Our contributor, frequent contributor Steve Alexander, asked me yesterday, well, what would you do now? I said, well, Steve, we shouldn't have gone in in the first place. He said, well, okay, okay, maybe, but what would you do now? And um, I don't know. I'm awfully glad I'm not the president trying to fix this because you know what they say, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And the strange thing about it is it's, it's almost, it's uncanny. 30 years ago, Steve and I were having these same discussions about what would you do now in Vietnam? And I think that's a topic best left for another day, but um, we, should, we should address that, the, the eerie repetition of history three decades later. All right, have you heard about what happened on, uh, on 60 Minutes, I guess it was, with Dan Rather over at CBS? They did a show talking about George W. Bush's National Guard Service. Now, in one of the most brilliant moves of the campaign, the issue of uh, military service has shifted from whether Bush ever showed up at the Alabama National Guard once he was transferred from Texas. He wanted to go work on the senatorial campaign of, uh, of uh, Winton, Winton Blount, a, a Nixon cabinet member who wanted to run for Senate in Alabama. And it was inconvenient to have to go to National Guard drills, so he got out of it. Now, Doonesbury author and cartoonist Gary Trudeau, about six months ago, had a standing $10,000 offer to anyone in the Alabama National Guard, who would come forward and saying that, yes, he saw George show up and fulfill his obligations. So far, no takers. Now, 60 Minutes talks, talked to a Texas politician who admitted pulling strings to get Bush into the Guard, which, uh, you know, should be a scandal. I mean, the fact that, uh, you know, we know this happened in Vietnam, and God knows, you know, uh, Again, Vietnam is, is a subject that we, don't, we need to go in in detail in a future show. But, you know, if you're president of the United States, you should have to address the issue of whether you served or not in accordance with your obligations. And um, CBS was given some papers 
which had some unflattering things to say about uh, Bush and the Alabama National Guard and how he, you know, was not fulfilling his obligations. Well, apparently the Lieutenant Colonel Killian, whose name was at the bottom of these uh, these uh, documents, supposedly private documents he kept sort of cover, you know, cover your rear in a private file. Well, it turns out these are evidently forgeries. They were given to CBS by what CBS calls an unimpeachable source. And yet, uh, the evidence was clear. In fact, in fact, it's pretty clear that CBS took some poison debate here. They were handed documents that were phonies. They went to air with them. And before, the CB, before 60 Minutes had even gone off the air, someone was calling CBS after seeing the program and saying, well, you know, the typeface that was used, it couldn't actually have been on a typewriter from, uh, from the 1970s. And, and analysis shows that apparently is true. So they're forgeries, but people have pointed out that uh, they may actually be fairly accurate recreations of a record that was sanitized. Reporters have located Marion Carr Cox, who worked from 1956 to 1979 at Ellington Air Force Base in Houston, and she typed up the memos for Lieutenant Colonel Killian and said that uh, they're not what I typed and, um, and I would have typed them for him. So she said that, you know, she remembered very vividly when Bush was there and all the yak, yak, yak about what was going on, but uh, said the telltale signs of forgery in the items, um, you know, are, are definitive. So it's, there's no question about it. CBS went with very clever forgeries. But what's curious about them is they come from an unimpeachable source, and they may actually reflect reality. They may actually recreate what the situation may have been, but um, in such a way as to bring up about the maximum possible discredit upon the allegations. What do you bet the hand of boy genius Karl Rove, uh, you know, is, is moving some of the pieces on this chessboard? I'm going to have to put off my um, book report I was going to do on, uh, on uh, the book Charlie Wilson's War. Uh, Charlie Wilson's War tells the story of the U.S. secretly funded covert operation in Afghanistan. It might be worth mentioning that of the 19 suicide hijackers that uh, attacked us on September 11th, 15 of them were from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia was secretly uh, matching U.S. government funds of that war, of the Mujahideen against uh, the Soviet Union. And all 19, yes, 19 out of 19, had at one point or another been to Afghanistan where that holy war was taking place. Charlie Wilson's war uh, has a lot uh, of background information on it that is relevant for the war on terror and war for what, and, and relevant for what has happened um, in Iraq since. We're going to come back to that. Let's talk about some uh, science and technology, maybe a little bit of medicine. I would refer you to the Harper's Magazine, July 2004 issue, which I just got around to reading. Excellent article about influenza, SARS, and the collapse of public health in the United States by uh, Ronald J. Glasser, MD. Talks about the vast sums of money we're expending to fight bioterror, and yet, um, you know, we know there's going to be a pandemic of influenza or something like influenza. SARS was a warning. And very little money seems to be spent in that direction. There, in fact, is no comprehensive plan for what to do when the next you know, potential pandemic like happened in 1918 comes along. One thing really got my attention out of this article I think I should mention 
I guess I didn't realize how close SARS came to becoming a pandemic. This flu-like syndrome that went to immediate pneumonia uh, in Hong Kong in February of 2003, investigated by the World Health Organization, which sent Dr. Carlo Urbani, an Italian infectious disease specialist. Dr. Urbani unfortunately succumbed to SARS in his investigation, but it was successfully quarantined. Now, apparently someone of Chinese extraction traveled from the Hong Kong area to Toronto, and it was successfully contained in Canada, but the article states that if SARS had come to the United States instead of Canada, the author believes there's little hope that it could have been contained. Now, we've kind of come uh, full circle here on politics immediately because a lot of this has to do with Bush administration action and inaction. To quote from the article, not even the CDC, Center for Disease Control, is immune from the virus of partisan politics. Despite an overwhelming medical consensus, the agency has refused to take a position on the use of condoms to prevent AIDS and has curtailed the printing or distribution of any data on the control or treatment of sexually transmitted diseases that might offend most conservative Christians. In response to political pressure from the NRA and threats from Congress to withhold funding, the CDC has also discontinued its definitive research documenting the public health costs of handguns. The FDA is often more concerned for the well-being of the pharmaceutical industry than for the health of American citizens. The FDA challenges states that that seek to purchase cheaper Canadian drugs for their citizens and ignores the ongoing concentration of drug and vaccine production into the hands of fewer and larger companies, which has led to greater consumer costs and vaccine shortages. This article was written in in July, but uh, currently there are are hearings in Congress about the, the following sentence. Not too long ago, the FDA supported the pharmaceutical industry's wish to give antidepressant drugs to children, despite the agency's own finding that such drugs might cause them to commit suicide. On yesterday's Talk of the Nation, Neil Conan was talking to various parents around the country about this issue. Now, we talked about this on this show. We've talked about actually all of this on this show. There are many studies that show that that selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, things like Paxil, and Prozac, uh, many disturbing studies have shown that when, uh, when adolescents and kids take these, that there's actually an increase in number of suicides and that, uh, you know, most people think this is a very bad idea to be giving these to kids. Well, Congress is finally doing something about this, but it's taken, it seems to have taken years for this to get on the front burner. And, you know, that, that second article... In, in that same Harper's uh, edition, which is worth reading, is titled Our Own Anthrax from, uh, by Ed Regis, who's the author of The Biology of Doom, The History of America's Secret Germ Warfare Project. They talk about how they dismantled the building at Fort Detrick, Maryland, that used to uh, create all of the anthrax spores. And uh, it's a very interesting article. Uh, when, when Stephen Valentino and I found ourselves in Washington, D.C. in July, we took a trip up to uh, the Gettysburg Battlefield and drove through Frederick, Maryland, home of Fort Detrick. I noticed that I couldn't see the, uh, the fort as, as you had previously from the freeway last time I was in that area. And apparently the reason is that they took down the largest structures, according to this article. 
It's pretty fascinating to note that in 1969, Richard Nixon argued that mankind already carries in its hands uh, too many of the seeds of its own destruction, and he terminated America's offensive germ weapons program. Well, supposedly he terminated it, but you notice that the attack on the United States Congress that took place uh, in 2001, where Tom Daschle and uh, Patrick Leahy, two Democratic administration uh, critics, then received mail that contained U.S. Army-created anthrax spores. So apparently we, we still continue to make them under the idea that, you know, you have to make some to do research on how to defense against, you know, uh, an attack. That's a story that sort of died down too, isn't it? You know, a U.S. military a taxpayer paid for anthrax used to attack United States Congress, and, and no one seems to think that's unusual? Stay tuned. All right, a couple of quick pure science stories. Um, current issue of New Scientist magazine has 10 questions in it, uh, the 10 biggest mysteries of life. Number four uh, intrigues me. Why do we sleep is the question we still don't know the answer to. We did a segment on this, on this, on this very topic uh, here on Radio Parallax uh, last year. But, uh, you know, uh, it's pretty well summarized in this one paragraph from the article. The average person spends a third of their life asleep, and going without it kills you quicker than starvation. Sleep seems to be fundamental in biology. All animals do it, and even cultured neurons in a Petri dish spontaneously enter a sleep-like state. Yet, we don't know what sleep is for. Which I always thought was the excuse of the medical profession, since we don't really know what it's for. <laughs> We're just going to run all the residents without sleep and do 36-hour shifts. You imagine getting in an airplane with a pilot that had been up for 34 straight hours? Well, they, they claim they reformed this in medicine, but they, they really have sort of done that in a... I, I guess they have, but that's also a topic for another day. From astronomy, they now believe that the solar samples in the Genesis mission, which crash-landed in Utah last week, there may actually be some uh, salvageable science uh, from the plates that were inside um, of, of the spacecraft. I... I hope so. I hope so. Our fingers are crossed. And out in the cosmos, apparently um, the European Southern Observatory, or ESO, was observing one of our nearer stars, in this case being one 230 light years away. Let's see. Let's do the math. So the light that's getting here now from this star left about the time they were signing the Declaration of Independence. That makes it one of our closest neighbors. Anyway, this star appears to have a large brown dwarf planet. In other words, a planet that's bigger than Jupiter. It's very hot. It wasn't quite big enough to become a star itself. Uh, but it's, it's there in photographs. They believe it to be. This got quite a bit of headlines, in fact. They believe the picture of this star and the brown dwarf next to it to be the actual first photograph of an extrasolar planet. You know, we still haven't resolved the issue from three weeks ago on whether a planetary system or another star is still called a solar system. We had a caller who was rather adamant that it would be, but I'm not convinced yet, so stay tuned. We're going we're to do some more research. But, you know, I think we're about out of time. Uh, well, one, one more. Article from the Australian National University in Canberra by Dr. Pat Blackwell, as reported in the New York Times, apparently crabs... Form coalitions. 
Apparently, human beings aren't the only creatures capable of forming self-serving alliances. Yes, the Australian fiddler crab, this simple invertebrate, uh, will sometimes join together with other crabs um, to fight off wandering males that may enter the territory. Now, this is sort of interesting. Researchers observe that when a large crab comes into a territory and might fight uh, fight for space and drive off uh, one of the crabs that's already living there, well, uh, the smaller crabs will join together to drive off the large rival. And uh, they point out this isn't really altruistic behavior. The uh, the smaller crab that uh, that joins in with uh, you know his his little neighbor, well, it it really makes sense for the following logic. You know, the new one the new guy shows up. If he drives off his little neighbor, he's now got a big neighbor. If he's got a forced, if he's forced to fight with the new guy anyway, he might as well fight with him now when he's got some help. So, uh, you know, coalition building, which we think of as common in human warfare, uh, had never been observed in animals until now. Dr. Blackwell noted that it's very easy to think that a complex behavior requires a high level of mental skill, but I don't think that's true. Well... I don't think that's true either. And it's time for a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and this is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento.